verses 8 to 10. We'll actually be reading uh, Colossians 2, verses 1 to 10. 10? 10. I know what I'm doing. Colossians 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. All right, before we get started, we're just going to pray one more time and ask the Lord's blessing on our time at uh, such an amazing part of uh, scripture we get to cover today. So let's pray. Father, our simple prayer today is to echo the words of that that, uh, famous poem, day by day, day by day, oh dear Lord, three things we pray, that we would see you more clearly, that we would love you more dearly, and that we would follow you more nearly day by day. Let that, that be true of us as we study your scriptures now. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, well, I'm really excited um, to get into this text. It'll be a good idea to have Colossians 2 in front of you as we go through because um, we'll be looking at how that section is uh, connected with everything that we've studied so far. If you guys can believe it, we've actually been in Colossians now for four months. We've been in Colossians for four months. I hope that doesn't feel excruciatingly slow. I hope that that uh, will encourage you in terms of being able to really get a hold of an entire book of the Bible. And because that is our goal for you as we go through this, I want to just sum up really quickly uh, some of what we've covered in Colossians, the main stuff behind Colossians. If you could sum up Colossians to a friend of yours at school or to your parents, There's really two big things that Paul is highlighting as he's talking to Christians in the city of Colossae. The first thing is that Christ alone is essential for salvation. Christ is essential for salvation. We saw that 
in places like chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, where Paul said that we are in the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. We are in Christ's kingdom, in the King's kingdom. And why is that? Paul says in verse 14, because in Christ we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So we're in Christ's kingdom because of what he has done by redeeming us and what he has done that God might forgive us. We also see that in chapter 1, verse 22, where Paul says Christ has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Reconcile is basically fixing. We used to be away from Christ, and now we are together living with and united with Christ. And all of that is because of what Christ has done. Christ is essential for salvation. But the other thing, and it was kind of the thing that the Colossians were really struggling with, wasn't necessarily salvation. Considering that Paul is actually encouraging them that they are Christians, they had faith, they had hope, they had love. The problem the Colossians really had was with this idea of sanctification, this idea of growing in Christ, and that Christ was that essential and central aspect of sanctification, of growing in Christ. He says that in Colossians chapter 128. Uh, 128 is kind of what I hope would be our verse that we really rally around this year at Roots. And Colossians 128 says, Him, being Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ, that everyone would grow exclusively in Christ through Christ's warnings and Christ's teachings and all of the wisdom that is found in Christ. And the big verse in Colossians that actually really gets at that idea of connecting Christ not only to salvation but to your sanctification is what Josh presented to us last week in Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. That's really like this key central thesis of all of Colossians. And chapter 2, verse 6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. The same Jesus who saved you is the same Jesus you walk with. This is like a picture in Colossians that uh, Paul is painting for us. He is imagining the Christian life like you're walking down a path. And even though most people agree that Christ is the one who put us on the path, Paul is trying to say, as you walk on the path, you're supposed to see that Christ has paved that path for you. And when you look to your right, he's standing right beside you, walking down that path with you. And that's going to be really, really important. Literally, chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Colossians are all going to be repeating this same truth over and over again. And one of the reasons that we have here in verse 8, one of the reasons it's going to be really important is because there's dangers on that path. Even Christians who are walking with Christ have to be observant of others on the path because Paul is going to say they are going to try to take you off the path. And he explains that in a very dramatic way. And that's where we're starting today in verse 8 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 8 says this. See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that you are not taken away into captivity. The word that he uses for takes you captive, that's all one word in the Greek, and that word is referring to being carried off by an enemy like you were their treasure or their plunder. 
There are people who are going to threaten your spiritual life and your soul. And they're going to do that in such a way that it's like they're physically picking you up and kidnapping you. That's the picture that Paul is trying to paint. There have been a lot of documented accounts over uh, the years of how awful it is to be taken as prisoner. There's many accounts of people who have been in wars and taken by the enemy. And there's many accounts, especially in the United States, of slavery at, it existed in the 1800s. One of the most famous accounts of slavery during that period was a guy named Solomon Northup. He wrote an autobiography that's very famous now that you may have heard of called 12 Years a Slave. Solomon's story was that he actually grew up as a free African-American man during the 1800s. And that was actually a big deal because I read a statistic recently that said less than 500,000 African-Americans in the states were actually free. And the rest, what, four million people, four million African-Americans, uh, were in some form of slavery or servitude. So just about one-eighth of African-Americans were actually free. But he was actually one of them. He grew up as a farmer and a landowner, and he actually grew into a very experienced violinist. And he loved music. And one day when he was visiting New York City, two men there offered him a job to come with them to Washington, D.C. and to play music for a circus that they had connections with. But by the time he got to Washington, D.C., he was abducted by those men. He was knocked out, gagged, and shipped to New Orleans. And as his book title suggests, he spent 12 years of his life as a slave. Eventually, when he was free, after those 12 years, he wrote about his experiences. And he wrote a number of very unique and very amazingly explained insights so that people would know how awful captivity was. But one of the insights that he said I found quite interesting and quite helpful for our text. This is something that Solomon Northup once said in his autobiography. He said, as such times, that is times as a slave or times during suffering, the heart of man turns instinctively towards his maker. In prosperity, and whenever there is nothing to injure him or make him afraid, he remembers him not and is ready to defy him. But place him in the midst of dangers, cut him off from human aid, let the grave open before him. Then it is in his time of tribulation that the scoffer and the unbelieving man turns to God for help, feeling that there is no other hope, refuge, or safety save in his protecting arm. Now, whether he's right or not, I think he gets at something that should be true. If people recognize how easy it is for them to be taken as a captive, they will recognize their weakness and they will turn to the only hope that they really have. And that hope isn't in their own strength, it isn't in their own skill, it isn't in their own smarts, it is exclusively in God. And Paul really wants to make that point in Colossians about Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, no matter what threatens you on the road of captivity, you can be completely safe and secure knowing all you need is Christ. All you need to have is Christ. And that's really where we're going in this sermon today. If you want a kind of main goal of today's sermon, it's this. In Colossians 2, verses 8 to 10, we will see how our lives are complete in Christ so that we are not taken captive by anything outside of Christ. We must see our lives as complete in Christ so that we are not taken captive by anything outside of Christ.
That's going to be really easily broken down, actually, in this section. Verse 8, Paul is going to explain the threat of captivity, and then he's going to present Christ in 9 and 10 as this solution, as this trust, as this reliance that we have so that we don't need to fear captivity. But he's going to start in 8, verse 8, by explaining the threat of captivity. And he explains to Christians they need to recognize the threat of captivity. That's verse 8. He explains the name of these kidnappers, these people who want to take you captive in verse 8, when he explains, see to it you are not taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The word philosophy that's there, the literal translation of that is a love of wisdom. And in a broader sense, what it actually refers to is any kind of system of thinking or religious group or guideline or theory anything you want to call that a person uses to figure out life and to answer some of the bigger questions of the universe. It could be any person saying that the most important thing for you to know is blank and then start from blank and keep going. Or it could be you already have your belief, that's fine, but if you take blank, if you take this, it'll help your life. It'll make what you believe even better. And what the Colossians were being threatened with was kind of that second idea. There are these different philosophies, these different kinds of thinking, and they were claiming to be important for your spiritual growth, that they would help you, that there are all sorts of people in Colossae who were spending time telling Christians, here's the next big thing. Everybody's raving about this. It's producing real results. And if you use it, it's really going to help you clarify what's good and what's bad and what's helpful and what's not helpful Anything along that could be called a philosophy. But Paul is explaining to Christians in this text that he wants them to see that these philosophies are not what they think they are. They are actually empty deceit. If you look at verse 8, it looks like he says philosophy and empty deceit, like they're two different things. But grammatically, what he actually means to say is that philosophy is empty deceit. They're the exact same thing. That's what the grammar actually shows. So whatever philosophy is, it's very dangerous because it looks good, but it's very, very bad. Now, how does Paul know that these philosophies are bad? He actually doesn't give us really any details about what these philosophies are. Well, we can trust Paul knowing that he was someone who knew Christ, and more importantly, Christ knew him. And Christ called him into ministry and sent him out with the truth of the gospel throughout the whole world. And Paul was bringing out something that is true of really any Christian, which is that as you learn all the glories about the right thing, about Christ, you start becoming observant of the wrong things. So basically what Paul is going to bring out for us is in the same way that he said in verse 6 and verse 7 that you're supposed to be rooted and built up in Christ. You're supposed to be rooted in Christ. He's going to explain that bad things are bad because they're rooted in the wrong thing. That's what he's going to bring out in verse 8. Here's maybe an illustration. This might be a a bit of a brutal illustration, but we're going to try it, and hopefully it can be helpful. Imagine that you have a garden, and you're trying to choose flowers to put in that garden, okay? Most people, when you talk to them, they would say, okay, the most important thing in choosing whatever flowers I want to put in my garden is how beautiful it is how nice it looks, and how good it draws the eyes of of people who walk past my garden. That's the most important thing. 
But Paul says there's actually something you need to know about that flower. You need to know where its roots lie and how they operate. Because there's lots of flowers that look beautiful, but if you look at how the root systems work, they actually go into the soil and they spread out and they get tangled up with other flowers and they start choking them. And before you know it, your whole garden full of flowers is absolutely destroyed because of the roots of this one flower. And Paul is gonna explain something similar comparing Christianity and Christ with these philosophies. These philosophies are threatening because their roots can get tangled up with Christ and start choking out and destroying the centrality of Christ in your thinking. That's going to affect your walk. It's going to affect your spiritual growth. It's going to affect everything if this takes the place because of its roots. So Paul is going to explain to us the two roots that are why philosophy is so threatening. And the first one is right there. He says, according to human tradition. According to human tradition. That's the first root. One definition of philosophy, I think appropriately, explained philosophy this way. Philosophy is elevating human wisdom over the wisdom of God. It is loving one's own thoughts at the expense of God's word. I think that's really helpful for anyone who thinks, okay, the application of this sermon is to go to college and never take a philosophy class. That's, that's the application. That's not the point. The point of this, the point that Paul's drawing out, is not that philosophies were thinking. That's not the problem. The problem is not just like thinking about these big questions of the universe. The problem is thinking about them without God. The problem is thinking about them, thinking that humans can think their way into understanding, can think their way out of their problems, can think their way into these amazing ultimate truths, and that's not true. When that happens, it just proves the truth that we as Christians understand, which is that when we elevate man in our thinking, we elevate humans above God. And that is exactly what these philosophies are doing. And part of the reason they were doing that was just because of tradition. Tradition, this long history behind this. If you go back to the flowers in the garden analogy, people will say, well, it's not just that the flower is beautiful. It's like for centuries, all across time, people have been saying that these flowers are beautiful. And Paul, one of the things he's talking about is you're still missing the point. Just because that flower is popularly assumed to be beautiful, that doesn't make it true. Just because a lot of people like something doesn't make it any more true or helpful. All it does is ignore the history of how that flower has destroyed many gardens. The history of philosophy is that people have been thinking without God, has said there's a long history of how helpful it is, ignoring the fact that it has many destroyed souls in its wake. That's the point Paul is trying to bring out. But there's a second one, and it's a little bit tricky. A second root because it's kind of talking about something culturally that it feels like we don't really deal with right now. The second root of philosophy is this idea of elemental spirits of the world. That's the next thing he says, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, in a lot of commentaries and sermons, a lot of people have disagreements on what that means. So I'm just going to do my best to present uh, what I believe this means after having studied it for a while. In the world that Paul is in, in Colossae, most people believed in some form of spiritual forces existing. They believed in God or a God, but most people believed in many gods, many spiritual forces, 
And these spiritual forces had a kind of hierarchy. There were ones that are really important to know and then ones that are like not as important, kind of like demigods or he's going to say later angels. The words that Paul uses for that throughout Colossians is this idea of rulers and authorities. When he says rulers and authorities, he's talking about spiritual forces, not like kings or queens, but spiritual things that are happening. And the people in Colossae found, even if you said you were a Christian, you still had to find these spiritual forces very important because they affected your life. There was a God of this part of your life, of farming, for example. So you needed to give a sacrifice to him. And there was a God of this too, a God of your brain. And so you needed to think about him and, and that appeased him and he was fine. So they were saying that all these spiritual forces were important to know about. But the term that Paul uses for them, this idea of elemental spirits of the world, has a connotation behind it. And that idea is whether these spiritual forces are made up or whether something actually supernatural is happening, the ultimate force behind that is Satan and his armies. The force that's behind those things are demonic. Lurking in the shadows of all of that kind of stuff is the devil. So in summation, basically what philosophy is, is people trying to think about how to spiritually grow with many theories, but it's actually deceiving people into captivity. And the reason that is, is because the roots of that philosophy is human thinking and these spiritual forces that have nothing to do with Christianity. And if we're trying to connect the dots here, you might think that this sounds like something you tell an unbeliever or a pagan or a Gentile, someone who's not a Christian in Paul's world, be like, yeah, you don't know Christ, so like, of course you're following these random pagan philosophies and human thinking, of course you're doing that, because you don't know Christ. But keep in mind, this is super, super important, Colossians is written to a church. Colossians is written to Christians. This is for Christians, this is for you. And the question is, why is it that Paul is telling Christians that's really important to know not to be influenced by this stuff? There are a lot of places we can start because Paul answers that question in the text. Now, if you're really well taught, you might have a lot of confidence in the truth that those who are truly in Christ will never be separated from Christ. And that is absolutely true. But the Bible also explains that there is a pattern that's noticeable about what it means to be a true believer. And it's centered on Christ. It is seeing him as the primary root that keeps us from being tangled up with all sorts of other things while we plant foreign flowers in our gardens. The root that we need is Christ. And because of that, the way that Christ works in a believer's heart is he keeps us responsible to draw us to himself and to follow his commandments and to acknowledge that he is central, that he is everything, and if we don't have him, we're deceived. So one of the reasons that Paul is acknowledging how important it is for Christians to know this is very simple, and it's because it's really easy to be deceived. This is something that you need to know as a believer. It is very, very easy for us to be deceived. We are, in Christ, still sinners, we still have our sin nature that is tempting us and makes deceit very easy. The devil plays dirty. He likes to prey on the weakness of mankind. And if we don't have Christ, we're just broken people. And broken people only 
think broken things and create broken systems to try and solve ultimate problems. Without Christ, humans are just empty people who try to fill themselves up with emptiness. That is all we are capable of doing. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. God says to the Israelites, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've created wells for themselves, broken wells that hold no water. When God doesn't have his central place, you will still try to figure out life's problems and deal with these big questions, but you won't be able to create truth. You either have the truth or you create lies and deception or you're taken captive by lies and deception because it is so easy to be taken into deceit. And this is also where it gets even trickier, something else that Paul is bringing out. It's especially easy to be deceived when people aren't attacking Christ, but they're adding to Christ. If you think about it, and I've been in this exact same situation, you can be really worried about someone, but they could say, I'm a Christian. And then they could mention a couple of truths about Christ. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's... I believe his teaching in the Bible, and I've read the Gospel of Matthew, and we kind of get chill with that. We're like, okay, then they're a Christian, we're fine. But the reality is there is a true Christ, and many people in the world, even in the highest places in authority, will acknowledge Christ, but it's not the right Christ. It actually isn't very hard to look at the way that this world has been influenced by weird spiritual forces. The weekdays on your calendar, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, those are named after Roman and Greek gods. Astrology and witchcraft, I read the other day, are growing and growing and growing among teenagers. Spirituality is not lost in this world, and you might not think it's an influence in your lives. But there are a lot of people who are deceived by those things, and there are a lot of people who are deceived by those things that include and don't disregard Christ. Guys, there's an entire state in America that's founded by a cult that believes in Christ. But it's not the right Christ. You will see all sorts of famous people, whether they're celebrities in movies or whether they're politicians, who will acknowledge the name of Christ. But you don't need to look at their lives very long to realize they don't believe in the Christ of the Bible. And the reason those people become powerful is because it's so easy to be deceived if you don't rely specifically on Christ. Here's something that's kind of interesting really about this though. Paul ends up summing up all this in verse 8 by this reminder that everything he's named is not according to Christ. It's not according to Christ and this is really what he means by that. Christ can have a place in many people's theology but that doesn't mean he has a central place in their heart. And that's where you can stop thinking about really dramatic understandings of being deceived. And you can start thinking about really subtle ways of being deceived, or even worse, subtle ways that you're deceiving yourself. So here's an example that uh, some of the guys um, were, were helpful in thinking about. Imagine right now, for those of you who want to spiritually grow in Christ, who acknowledge, I love Christ, I want to be a Christian, I want to grow. Imagine right now, you could talk to the best spiritual leader you know who you would say is like, that's the best Christian who's like ever lived, whether it's your parents, whether it's a preacher from the past, whoever it is, right? Whether your parents or whether it's, you know, John MacArthur just standing in front of you. And you want to ask him, 
man, you've helped me like so much in growing uh, through your life and your teaching, whatever. I want to grow like you. How do I grow like you? That's your question. And they respond to you. You know what really the secret is? You know what the key is? You just got to look at Christ. And you got to grow in Christ. And you got to love Christ. I think a lot of us, including myself, would sometimes feel like that's not a good answer. It's like, yeah, but how though? Like, how specifically do you grow in Christ? What, what kind of Bible reading thing are you doing? Or what kind of practices do you have? Like, do you get up really early in the morning to pray? Or do you pray at night? Like, what specifically? And that can be a good thing. Or it could be an evidence of how little we actually believe in the sufficiency of Christ. We can get so attached to ways to be godly that we easily forget about God himself. We can think about strategies through Bible apps or through really gifted YouTube teachers, and we can completely forget that all of it is useless if it's not centered on Christ. That's how easy it is for us to be deceived. And this is the best part. This is why this passage is so amazing for you to grow spiritually is none of that is supposed to ride on your strength or your intellectual capability. This passage is not about Paul saying, get smarter, start learning about these cults, start learning about these groups and just get smart and you'll never not notice them. That's actually not what this passage is about at all. It's super simple. It is look at Christ. He says, Christ is enough. He is completely able to save you to help you spiritually grow, and he, by looking at him and growing in him, you will start to naturally notice that these things do not compare to Christ. And that's really where he goes in the next two verses. He goes to relying on our union with Christ. That's verses nine and 10 in a nutshell. Rely on your union with Christ. The truth that is really hanging over the entire book of Colossians and weaved in and throughout like all these different verses is this idea that you are united in Christ. Christ is not a foreign concept that you believe in. He's a real person who's greater than any other authority or any other power in the world. And he's not just someone who put you on the path towards him, towards that hope that's laid up for you in heaven. But he's walking beside you. You're united with him. He is always with you. He is always available to be your greatest friend, your greatest advocate, your greatest counselor. He is always there. That's really the thrust behind Colossians 2, 6, and 7. As you're walking on this path, you turn your head to the left, and there is Christ reminding me he has the exclusive ability to save me and the exclusive ability to keep me united with him and the way he's going to do that which is again something so helpful because of our tendency as sinners is to just remind us of truths we already know when he starts verse 9 it's almost an exact replication of something we've already seen chapter 2 verse 9 paul says in him in christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily think to yourself if we've heard that before think to yourself does that sound familiar? And I hope it does sound familiar because it's already showed up in Colossians. Colossians 1.19, in that amazing section about Christ, Paul said, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
Here's something that is very relieving to hear as a Christian. Your spiritual growth is not riding on just learning more and more and more new things, even though that's great and that is helpful. So often, the best spiritual growth that you have is just loving the truths that you already know more. Just looking back at the things that have already excited you and energized you in the gospel and just going back to them over and over and over again. That's how you stay rooted in Christ. So I want to do that too. I want to tell you something that you've already learned and help you explain how it's helpful here. Raise your hand if you were at summer retreat. Okay, perfect. I think if I asked you what summer retreat about, was about, I think most of you guys would tell me the same thing, which is the Trinity, right? Raise your hand if summer retreat you think of like the Trinity. That's Okay, good, so most of you. So remember one of those truths that Caleb brought out for us about the Trinity, which is the idea that before anything existed, the Trinity was totally complete in himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one essence, one God, three persons, and he's fine. He doesn't need anything. So he doesn't create the world out of a kind of loneliness. He creates the world out of an overflow of love and glory for himself. He is full. He's complete. He needs nothing. And Christ is the whole fullness of deity. You know what that means? If God is complete in himself, he can definitely complete you. We know brokenness. We know emptiness. God has never known brokenness. He has never known emptiness. So he is definitely going to have the solution to your brokenness and your emptiness. You can definitely be complete in him. And again, this is something that Colossians is pushing us and forcing us and helping us really love and really get and not get past. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, in everything, Christ will be preeminent. He will be first place. So if Christ is going to make everything right and he's going to be over everything, then him being first place in your life and first place in everything you do is definitely the right move because he's going to fix everything. Colossians 1.27, the riches of the glory of the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is no hope in this world that can truly give you hope like Christ can. Why? Because he's in you and he has all the riches of the glory of the mystery of God. One of my favorite verses in Colossians is Colossians 2.3. Super simple. This could be like an amazing life verse. Christ, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you find anything wise or knowledgeable in this world, compare it to Christ and it's nothing. And if it is even remotely relevant, it still falls at his feet and worships him because he has all wisdom and all knowledge. He has everything you need. And Paul even tries to tack that on with just a little bit more in verse 9. He says, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. It dwells bodily. That means God's not just out there being helpful. God in Christ put on human flesh and he walked among you. He is clearly visible. We have his life in scripture. We have the accounts of people who really see him and really walked with him and really experienced him and had real friendships with him. And they all attested 
that he can definitely complete us. That's what he came to do. That's what he came to accomplish. And we know that when we realize that he dwelt in the earth with us. Matthew 1.23 literally says the name of Christ is God with us. That is his identity, being with his people by walking with his people. John chapter 1, verse 9 and verse 14 says this. Again, amazing verses. Christ is the true light, which gives light to everyone, which means he can fix everything. And he came into the world. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and he revealed the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the true light, and he revealed the light on the path for us and made it clear that darkness could never do what he can do. Darkness doesn't light the path. Only light lights the path. And Christ is clearly the light because he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. Then we have the knockout punch of verse 10. This is Paul bringing all this together. This is why philosophy and empty deceit is rooted in nothing. And this is why rooted in Christ is everything. Verse 10, you have been filled in him. Empty people fill themselves with emptiness. But Christ has filled us with his whole fullness of God. Do you see that little parallel? Christ has filled you with the whole fullness of God. And if you have been united with him and filled up with him who is the whole fullness of God, what on earth could you want besides Christ? Hopefully, the beautiful, true answer is nothing. That word to be filled, it literally means complete. That is what the word means. Christ has promised and proved that he is everything that we need. So we actually have a really easy job for us today, and that will make the rest of chapter 2 and going into chapter 3 really easy for you. This is the question you need to ask yourselves for the rest of Colossians. Are you filled in him? Look at the path you are on. Check your heart. Check your intentions. Ask yourself in a moment on the soccer field or in the middle of a class or in the middle of a play or production or when you're driving in your car in the backseat or you're the one driving the car. In those moments, ask yourself the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? Does it actually go back to Christ? Is it rooted in Christ? Am I responding to people, not because I want to be like Christ, but because I love Christ? And Christ is going to make me imitate him as I fill myself up in him alone. And if you've never done that, if you keep drinking from these water fountains that the world is offering, you need to remind yourself that Christ is not just another water fountain. He is the well, the bottomless well of living waters, and you've been filled in him already. You're not even complete from your continual pursuit in Christ. You are complete already in Christ, and he just continues to fill you up while you are already full. And we need to ask ourselves the question going forward, what is tempting us? What is motivating us? What is drawing us away from this idea that the world does anything good except that which is found in Christ. 
and the punch that he keeps adding, the uppercut he adds after the initial strike is the rest of verse 10. If there's anything that you're worried about that is more powerful than you, that is more tempting you, that just has a hold on you, then you need to know that the Christ who has filled you up is also, verse 10, the head of all rule and authority. Christ is the head of all rule and authority. Christ is bigger and better and stronger and greater than anything in this world, and he will prove it to you if you recognize him and pursue him. Because that is going to be such an important point moving forward, let me conclude with this verse from John 17 2. John 17 is Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death, and he is praying. Think about that. God is praying to God, and we have it in Scripture. Just think about how absolutely insane that is. And then read what Christ prayed for you in John 17, too. Christ says, you have given me authority over all flesh. And what is Christ going to do with that authority? To give eternal life to all whom you have given me. And this is eternal life, that they know you. Not that they would continually serve you, not that they would be perfect before you, not that they would work their way or think their way towards you, but that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The truth that we want to help you grasp today is that you are complete in Christ, and if you are complete in Christ and you trust Christ and your deepest root is in Christ, nothing else could take you captive. And the beautiful truth that the rest of chapter 2 is going to explain is Paul is going to remind Christians why you believe that. He's going to remind Christians why Christ has 100% accomplished your salvation and proved to you perfectly and permanently that he is everything and exclusively what you need. That's what we're going to cover in the rest of Colossians chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we do not want to be lukewarm Christians. We do not want to be people who try to earn our way to you or try to be smart enough or good enough or godly enough to be right before you. Lord, you are going to accomplish all of that in our hearts. We care about responsibility. We want to be right in your eyes, but we can't do any of these things until we understand that you have freely given us your son Christ for our sins, and there is no way that this world is anything better than you. And we don't just want to believe that now. We want to remember how weak we are and throw ourselves at your feet every single day. And you have promised that you will do that to us as you reveal yourself more and more to us. So again, Lord, we want to pray day by day, day by day, oh Lord, three things we pray. That we would know you and see you more clearly, that we would love you more deeply, and that we would follow you more nearly day by day. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, and help us to seek you more clearly. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. I think that uh, the small groups have changed.
a little bit in terms of where you meet. So I'm going to ask where you guys are meeting now.